Hello, sci-fi and thriller fans, and welcome to episode two of Brian Johnston's Death Warrant. My name is Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on Death Warrant. The reality TV show Death Warrant has millions of viewers sitting on the edge of their seats as an unsuspecting volunteer is killed, live in prime time. Joey Dahl sees his last day, which leads the show to search for the next person to assassinate for its audience's viewing pleasure. Frankie Percival tries to impress the production team to prove that she's worthy of being chosen for this gruesome affair. What kind of fate awaits her if she gets her way? Chapter 4 Sheila Graveman is sipping a nice cup of Earl Grey when her professional antenna begins to twitch. Her guy down in surveillance who tracked the initial interview with Benjamin had shot her a note to keep an eye on this one. Sheila has been in the viewing room for less than 30 minutes, and with each passing minute, she is becoming more and more convinced that her guy is right. This one's a winner. And not just a winner, but a flat-out career changer. Unlike Frankie Percival assumed, the viewing studio is not a sterile white room with a team of serious-looking men and women in lab coats. It is instead a comfortably appointed space populated with people dressed sharply in suits and skirts. The company has a strict dress code. There is no such thing as casual Friday at the death warrant offices. Nobody wants to die at the hands of someone in cargo shorts. The viewing studio is a windowless space about the size of a standard living room. One wall is covered with a host of video displays and physiological monitors. Frankie appears on all the monitors, each showing her from a different angle and distance. There are wide shots, medium shots, close-ups, and one extreme close-up where only her eyes fill the screen. There are six people in the room, four men, two women. Frankie was right, assuming that several of them are holding glass tablets, comparing data between the tablets and what is showing on the wall-mounted displays. There is a lot of data, a non-stop river of it. Some around the offices quietly wonder if paying this much attention to detail on someone you are going to kill might be a bit much but Sheila knows that's ignorant. Data is their life's blood, and you can never have too much information. Sheila rises from her seat holding her china teacup and saucer, her eyes fixed on the bank of monitors. She slowly walks around the room, stirring her cup with a small silver teaspoon. No plastic cups and flatware at death warrant. Sheila is 37 years old, and recognized as an up-and-comer within the company. 37 is relatively young in the organization. There are no employees below the age of 30. Extensive research determined that 30 is the youngest age at which one can fully accept the level of responsibility that comes with this work and have the moral fiber to handle it. The vetting process for landing a job at death warrant is rigorous. Sheila has been one of the creative directors for three years. 
Before that, she had a lucrative career as a top wedding planner on the West Coast. Her weddings were high-class events that frequently made headlines. The level of creativity of her weddings had inevitably made her popular in the Hollywood set, which took her income to another level. But she grew weary of bridezillas, and after all, you can only do so much with crinoline before it all becomes redundant. And after hearing, till death do you part, a few hundred times, the career shift seemed a natural. Sheila has shown a deft touch with her death warrant assignments. Two of her jobs the previous year had made it into the top five year-end special. She has a great eye and manages the slippery feat of making her executions theatrical, yet authentic. Quite simply, she has the knack. The event that put her on upper management's radar featured a rifle shot on a remote Norwegian mountaintop. She instinctively knew the location would garner attention. It was unexpected, exotic. She also knew the money shot wouldn't be when the bullet hit, but the ensuing fall. She did the math. The body would fall for 12 seconds. 12 glorious seconds. The ratings were terrific. Sheila slowly paces the deep carpeted room, her tea still in her hand, all but forgotten. She has sharp features that are only highlighted by a severe hairdo. Her bangs are a hard line of pitch black hair set above eyes that are nearly as dark. The woman has presence. Sheila knows that she is respected within the death warrant halls, but still can't shake the feeling that she always has to prove herself. She is convinced that if she were a man, she would have moved up the corporate food chain quicker and higher. There has never been anything overt. She doesn't believe she is being overlooked purposefully because of her sex. Gender inequality is simply ingrained in the corporate culture. It's been 227 years since the Emancipation Proclamation, and although the world's moving in the right direction, she senses it is still a long way from being a level playing field. It is a cultural shift, she knows, that is akin to turning around a super tanker. Perhaps, she grudgingly admits, it is why she presents herself with a little more of a masculine edge. Have you noticed her heart and respiratory rates? Sheila asks the room. Ice in her veins, says Brett Hasham, one of her associate creative directors, a trim blonde man a few years younger than Sheila. His eyes are flitting back and forth between his glass tablet and the vital signs displayed on the monitors. That's an understatement, says Sheila. Her respiratory rate is 13 breaths per minute, and her heart rate is 60. Pretty low, observes Letitia Boronevska, one of the technicians and the only other woman in the room. Does she look like a marathon runner? Asks Sheila rhetorically. No, she does not, she answers. She's just committed to being executed on worldwide television. And yet she's chatting with Myrna like they're trading gardening tips, cool as a cucumber. Sheila turns to one of her team. We did check her for psychotic tendencies, right? Of course. 
she came back clean as a whistle. She seems to be processing this as normal. Sheila walks up to the bank of monitors and studies the array of vital signs. Eye dilation minimal, breathing steady, body temperature normal. She's the unsinkable Molly Brown. No one picks up on the Titanic reference. Sheila walks back to her chair and eases back down, still stirring her tea. This is the kind of stuff that makes me glad I get up in the morning. One of the technicians, a man about 40, but new to the organization, pipes up. So you think this one could be pretty good? Sheila's eyes never leave the monitors. You watched her interview with Benjamin? The technician nods, suddenly self-conscious of his newness. Yes, he answers tentatively. Sheila turns to him, knowing this is a teachable moment. She asked good questions. Like, the one about people, wanting to feel the experience of dying. That shows she's curious about the human condition. That kind of trait scores well. And the fact that she's a mentalist? Asks the technician, hopefully. Absolutely, replies Sheila, a point in her favor. Unusual profession. Over the next few hours, Sheila Graveman takes copious notes, noting key words and phrases. By hour two, she is already turning over ideas in her head. By hour three, she is bouncing around the studio like her tea was laced with amphetamines. She knows she has something special. Frankie Percival has the potential to be her work of art, her Mona Lisa, her starry night. However, Sheila thinks another comparison may be more appropriate. Edward Monk's the Scream. Chapter 5, February. My regular joint is a coffee shop in Southeast called the Zombine Apocalypse. Whoever came up with that name better know they will never create anything better than that for the rest of their life. That's one of those names where you think, damn, I wish I'd thought of that. Don't let the name fool you, though. It's a surprisingly cheerful place. The coffee shop features token framed zombie movie posters throughout, a given, but the owners took pains to not go overboard with the zombie motif. It's basically a smiley face version of zombie decor. I walk past the butter yellow wall that's positively glowing from the sun streaming in through the picture windows fronting the place. You'd never know it was 45 degrees outside. A fireplace at one end is surrounded by mismatched overstuffed chairs, and the tables look like they were purchased at the same secondhand store where the owner of the Mission Theater shops. I love the fireplace. Another nice touch is that at every table, you will always find an old magazine. I'm not talking a few months or even years old. I mean old, old, like multiple decades old. Mostly mags that don't exist anymore, with titles like Look, Life, People, Time, and Cosmopolitan. The issues of Cosmo are always in hot demand. Who doesn't want to start their day with The Three Tricks That Will Drive Your Man Wild in the Sack? By the way, I read that article and spent the next week questioning my skills and draining half a case of Chardonnay. Every morning, the coffee shop staff makes it a point to rotate in a different assortment of magazines. 
In all my years of coming here, I've never seen the same magazine from one day to the next. The owner must have a stockpile somewhere, or somebody who hooks him up. Regardless, it's a cool touch that adds to the color of the place. The barista working the counter is an early 20-something, sleepy-eyed cutie by the name of Mitzi. She's there on a regular basis, late afternoons and evenings. Based on the hours, I assumed she was there to help pay for college, but it turns out she's just a late sleeper, and the idea of beginning the day before noon is against everything she stands for. That might explain her half-lidded look and borderline, yeah, whatever, attitude. Based on our conversations over the months as I placed my orders, I learned that she's not big on elocution, kinda blends her words, and what she stands for is making really good coffee with those nifty little pieces of artwork in the foam, hanging out with her unemployed boyfriend, Lloyd, partying into the wee hours of the morning, and then wrapping things up with a solid 10 hours of sleep. Rinse and repeat. I order my standard chai tea, medium, compliment Mitzi on her new haircut and inverted bob, and grab a seat by the fireplace. The fire's burning low, so it's giving off just the right amount of heat. It'll probably be a good 15 more minutes before they throw another log on, at which point I'll need to move to another seat, which is fine. I'm a notorious chair hopper, usually for the purpose of finding a clear view of a customer. There's one seat in particular that has the best view. It's by the window, and from there you can see every table in the shop. I grab it when I can, because I like to do more than watch people. I like to study them. That probably sounds creepy, but I assure you it's not the least bit nefarious. My time at the Zombine is precisely that, my time. It's my quiet time, my time to hang, sip, and space, and study. The Zombine is my study hall, where I hone my observation skills. Sometimes I'll kick back with a magazine and while away the hours, getting caught up on what had tongues wagging a few decades prior. The COVID pandemic, the last mass-produced gas-powered car, the first truly comfortable women's dress shoe. However, more often than not, I'm picking out a face in the crowd and trying to define their story. Of course, most of the time, I have no idea if I'm right, as I never speak to them, but it still helps me to focus on people's subtleties. Case in point, the couple by the window closest to the door. Two women, both mid-thirties. I probably shouldn't say couple, as they clearly are not a romantic couple. The one on the left, in a baggy maroon sweater, is chatty and animated. Her friend, no doubt a good friend, a more elegant-looking woman wearing a stylish blouse and a haircut to die for, sits quietly stirring her drink and listening intently. Only good friends and salespeople try to look like they're listening that intently. But with this woman, it's not an act. You can see it in her body language. She's leaning in slightly, the way you do when you're interested in something, but aren't even aware that you're leaning in. Her chatty friend's left hand flits around like a butterfly, while her right hand is wrapped around her forgotten coffee. The cups are paper, with those sleeves to keep your hand from getting too hot. That tells me they weren't planning on staying, but taking the drinks to go. But while they were waiting for their orders, the chatty friend must have started a story that both deemed best suited for a sit-down. The good listener is sporting an impressive rock on her left-hand ring finger. 
Even from across the room, you can tell it's a stunner. She's absentmindedly rubbing the ring with the thumb of the same hand while she stirs with the other. She's obviously the married of the two, and I'd wager that the chatty one is talking about a man, either a recent date or a boyfriend who's done something that's got her frustrated. I'm going with the boyfriend angle as she's looking a tad too frumpy, which tells me she's no longer on the hunt and has slipped into a comfort zone with this guy. The conversation is probably running along the lines of the guy being marriage-phobic, not being there when she needs him, spending too much time with his buddies, leaving the toilet seat up, watching too much football, snoring, or not noticing the five pounds she's lost. With the way the good listener is working that wedding ring, she's most likely thinking how glad she is to be out of the dating game. I tire of the ladies and glance around to see whom else I can try to read. Frankly, I shouldn't even be here. I should be back at my apartment working on Bosco. How else am I going to become the next big thing in the entertainment world? I promise myself I'll only stick around a couple more minutes and then bail. I continue my scan, trying to make my last minutes count. It's an average crowd, maybe a dozen people scattered throughout, and the majority are riveted to their optics. I've got an optic myself, but it's more of a convenience than a source of entertainment, which places me squarely in the extreme minority. I mean, sure, I use it to watch movies and stuff now and then. I'm not Amish for crying out loud, but for some reason that I've never quite been able to pinpoint, I'm not that into the stupid thing. If I had any close friends, friends I'm not paying for, they'd more than likely label me nuts. Whatever. I've concluded that most people live and die by their optic. If their house was on fire and they had to choose between saving their optic or their significant other, my money's on the optic. I'm about ready to give up and call it a day when my eyes drift over to a man sitting by the center pillar. I notice that his head is not buried in his optic, so he's got that going for him. He's reading an ancient dog-eared copy of a magazine that appears to be called Tiger Beat whatever that is. The cover features a young blonde man with feathered hair and a puka shell necklace. I think it's a music magazine, but can't be sure. I see a headline partially covered by his fingers holding the magazine that breathlessly shouts in bold text, Leaf tells all. The man must feel the weight of my stare and glances up from the pages. His eyes are blue, like not so blue. He's a bit older than me, but not too much so, and has a ceramic mug steaming to his left. Okay, he's left-handed, which is interesting. Only 10% of the population are lefties. I like anomalies. My eyes finish their once-over, getting a general sense of the man before being drawn back up to those ridiculous eyes. And get this, he's still looking at me. Weird. Most people, when they catch you looking at them, immediately avert their eyes, but not this character. He just continues to stare right back at me, like it's a game of visual chicken. Eventually, he blinks, gives the slightest of smiles, and goes back to reading about Leaf telling all. I'm not used to men staring at me for more than a couple of seconds. It doesn't happen often. I'm what I like to call almost pretty. If I was 10 pounds lighter, two inches taller, had thinner ankles or thicker hair, I might get a stare every now and then, but that hasn't been the case. 
I'm the before picture in a shampoo commercial, kind of like the chatty woman in the baggy maroon sweater I was reading earlier. Not quite put together, but I don't have a boyfriend and hence no excuse. I take in the rest of the room to find a suitable target, but my eyes seem to home back in on Tiger Beat Guy. Damn it. I find myself a tiny bit flustered by this. Why am I looking at this guy? It's not like he's drop-dead gorgeous. Okay, his eyes qualify, but the rest is nothing to write home about. He's wearing a blue plaid flannel shirt, and I can't help but wonder if he consciously chose it to compliment his eyes. Is he the kind of guy who does that sort of thing? Does he know what his season is? Where he falls on the color wheel? The rest of the ensemble doesn't give that impression. Faded blue jeans, non-designer, and worn sneakers. It's late afternoon, and yet there's no stubble on his chin, so that tells me he shaved that morning. Therefore, he's most likely gainfully employed. But it must be a job that doesn't have banker's hours. A bartender? No, bartenders don't care if they're clean-shaven. A salesman? Excuse me, account executive. Perhaps an executive, someone who can choose his own hours? Hmm, not clean-cut enough. His hair is a smidge too shaggy for the average white collar of his age. Portland's a pretty laid-back town, but there are still rules to business dress, and what he's wearing wouldn't even rate business casual. The fact that he had no issue locking eyes with me tells me he has no shortage of confidence, so he could be one of those overachievers where everything comes easy, and his confidence allows him to get away with looking just this side of professional. His hair is blonde with zero product, with enough gray in it to suggest he's not overly vain. He's a comfortable level of disheveled. Maybe DEFCON 3.5 on the messy scale, five being wedding day spit and polish, one being hobo living under a bridge. After careful consideration, I'm going with entrepreneur. I feel satisfied with my assertion, silently pat myself on the back and take a rewarding sip of chai. My attention is drawn away by the two women I was analyzing earlier. They've finished their conversation, if not their coffees, push away from their table and walk past me heading to the bathroom. The chatty one seems much more at ease than earlier. Evidently, she needed some good old-fashioned venting. By the time they pass me, I glance back up at Tiger Beat, but he's gone. I look around the coffee shop with a twinge of disappointment, just in time to see the front door swinging shut behind him. He's heading directly across the street to parts unknown. I track his progress longer than I should. His head turns left. Was that a glance back? No, just checking traffic to make sure all's clear. He reaches the other side and heads north until I can no longer see him through the window. Chapter six. Crap, I'm hungover. What the hell? Am I suddenly 18 again? Annoyed that Mr. Blue Eyes stared at me and then walked out without so much as a glance back, I spent my evening sulking with a bottle of Pinot Noir and Dark Side of the Moon. I roll over and peek outside through slitted eyes. I'm sure it's not physically possible, but the sun feels really loud right now. I curse the daylight and stagger into the bathroom. I look in the mirror and cringe at the creature looking back. She looks vaguely familiar, 
Red, watery eyes deeply set in a face that could pass for a piece of fruit that's been left out in the sun for too long, framed by hair that appears to have been styled with a hand mixer. Spence, I groan. What time is it? 12.32 p.m., replies Spencer from a speaker embedded in the mirror. 12.32? God. I take a closer look at my face, open my mouth and inspect my tongue, half expecting it to be a shade of color not yet discovered by mankind. Orson, I say, shower on, 102 degrees. Certainly, replies the voice from the shower in its rich transcontinental accent. I peel off my clothes, climb in under the water, spend the next 15 minutes regaining consciousness. The water feels like tiny Fred Astaire's doing a soft shoe on my head, neck, and shoulders. By the time I climb out, I feel halfway human again. Nice work, Orson, I say. My pleasure, it replies. I trudge to the fridge, open it, stare for a couple of seconds, and close it. Not quite ready for food yet. I stare at the coffee maker and arrive at the same conclusion. Evidently, I will be going sustenance-free for the time being. I plop down on the couch and stare into space, trying to reestablish my equilibrium, when Spencer pipes up. You had a call, he says. You're kidding. I never get calls. Well, seldom get calls. Who was it? Should I play the call, asks Spencer with a touch of annoyance. I didn't even know he could do annoyance. Yeah, sure. A face appears on the video screen, my agent. And I use the term loosely. I honestly don't remember the last time we talked. I think he's landed me exactly one job in the last five years. His name's Mel Bevacqua, a short, squatty little Italian, mostly bald. He's gotta be at least 60 by now. When I started doing mentalism as a profession, I figured I needed an agent to rustle up some bookings, and Mel was the first name I stumbled across. His office was in a nondescript one-story building not far from my apartment. We met, chatted, I showed him a few mentalist bits. He acted sufficiently impressed. We shook hands, and just like that, he was my agent. For the first few years, he landed me a fair number of gigs, but then the calls became less and less frequent until they simply stopped. I guess he had other, more promising clients by then. It was no big deal. I had steady work coming in and had figured out the marketing side of the business, so I seldom went too long without a gig. On the video screen, he looks and sounds like it has only been days since we last spoke instead of years. Frankie, it's Mel. I received a last minute call for a job that's right up your alley. It pays well, and you'd be in and out in an hour. Give me a call if you're interested. Ciao. Frankly, he had me at it pays well. I call him right back. He answers on the first ring. Bevacqua talent, this is Mel. How can I help you? That's one of the things I always like about Mel. He's damn courteous. Hi, Mel, it's Frankie. Frankie, thank you so much for calling me back so promptly. I cut to the chase. What's the gig? A birthday party for a corporate bigwig. Evidently, he's got a thing for magicians. The one he had booked canceled due to an undisclosed medical emergency, and his assistant called me looking for a replacement. Lucky me, I say. What else can you tell me? The party is at the gentleman's home in the West Hills. Swank, I say. Indeed, 
Since they're in a bit of a bind, I charge them a, shall we say, rush fee, a portion of which I will include with your standard fee. Uh, Mel, my standard fee is a little higher than it was when last we spoke, half a decade ago, about 25% higher. I would expect nothing less. That tells me he probably charged 40% more without asking, and I don't get to keep the difference. So you'll do it, he asks. Standard show, one hour? Sure. What's the time and address? Mel provides me the information, wishes me luck, and hangs up without a single question about what I've been up to for the last five years. All business. I like that about Mel. I feed the address into my optic, and Spencer tells me it's only a 15-minute drive away. After I hang up, a thought occurs to me. Spence, call Audrey. A moment later, Audrey's face appears on screen, looking much fresher and more clear-eyed than I do. She leans into the camera with a squint. Bloody hell, it looks like someone's feeling a bit dicky today. You should have seen me an hour ago, I say. Glad I didn't, she replies. Say, Odd, you got anything going on tonight? Without missing a beat. Dinner with Her Majesty the Queen, she says. It's hot dog night. Cancel, I say. Tell her you've got a better offer. Audrey scrunches up her face and shakes her head. I don't know. You did hear me, yeah? It's hot dog night. Tell her you've got an opportunity to escort an up-and-coming American entertainment star on what will most likely be a historic performance, I say, as I casually curl a lock of my hair with a finger. Wait, what? Says Audrey, seriously surprised. You're inviting me to one of your gigs. You never invite me to your gigs. Old dog, new tricks. Feeling lonely, want to show off. Hell, pick one. I don't know, I thought you might like it. I got a last minute call for some bigwig's birthday party. You'd probably, you know, have to wear something nice, makeup and stuff too. Are you kidding me, says Audrey. This is a big ass deal. I'll actually get to wear a dress and cool shoes. What time and where? I'll pick you up at six. And with that, I click off and flop back into my couch. It was nice to see Audrey so excited about coming to see me perform. She was right, I'd never invited her before, not exactly sure why. Maybe it's because I pay her to hang out with me. Whatever, that's deeper self-examination than I'm interested in at the moment. That, and my head still hurts like a mother. I have a few hours to recuperate, so I begin the healing process with Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. It's a 44-minute album made up of only five songs, which gives you plenty of time to fully immerse yourself in a song before it changes. I think I only make it through 10 minutes of Shine On You, Crazy Diamond's 13-minute running time before I drift off, buoyed by the shimmering medicinal powers of Floyd. I awake fully refreshed and ready to kick birthday party ass and astonish the masses. The promise of a big fat check can do that for you. Yesterday's events of the zombie, already a distant memory. Chapter 7 With artificial intelligence as my trusty navigator, I put my car into autonomous mode, and it finds a sweeping, elegant home tucked behind an imposing ornate gate a good 15 minutes before showtime. This is a tax bracket neighborhood I am not accustomed to, 
Every house looks like it should be featured on an episode of, oh my God, I wish I owned this home. The cars parked in the turnaround make my modest little rig look garishly out of place. We walk up the crushed rock pathway that's flanked by a perfectly manicured lawn and immaculate landscaping. I spot a raked gravel garden punctuated by several small boulders. The symmetry is perfect. A few well-trimmed bonsai and skeletal, leafless Japanese maples ring the garden. I silently approve. Audrey is looking around only slightly more starstruck than me. What's the name of our birthday boy? Asks Audrey, bending to sniff a perfect-looking flower to see if it is real. It must be fake. It's winter, right? Her reaction gives no hint. Uh, I didn't ask, I say. Audrey looks stunning in a fitted emerald green gown and gorgeous cream open-toed stilettos. I'm in my standard Frankie attire. Khaki slacks, dress shirt, vest, loose tie, and a men's bolero hat jauntily dipped to one side. I saw a woman dressed like this in a Woody Allen movie from about a century back and thought it was just my style. I've emulated it ever since. Eclectic chic is what I call it. I've heard less flattering descriptions over the years, but I couldn't give a rip. I can hear the low hum of crowd conversation before I knock on the door. Then I hear the unmistakable ping of my and Audrey's optics. It's the death warrant ping. The international heads up that an episode is about to begin. My gaze snaps to Audrey, just as her hand is reaching for her clutch. Don't you dare, I say. Don't you freaking dare. You can go without an episode just this once. Audrey's face scrunches up like the thought is painful, but she draws her hand away from her clutch. Okay, okay, fine. But your bit better be fucking brilliant if I'm missing me show. As if on cue, the door opens, and a stately gentleman with astonishing posture, a cutaway waistcoat, and a warm smile greets me. Miss Percival, I presume? The gentleman glances at Audrey smoothly. And Gust? You presume correctly, I say, trying to match his smile. He ushers us into a polished bamboo-floored foyer that's nearly the size of my apartment. Please wait here, he says. Someone will be with you shortly to go over the arrangements. The gentleman gives us a polite nod, and then before he turns to leave, he says, I understand Mr. Hasegawa is looking forward to your performance. Audrey turns to me with her oh my god face and says in a stage whisper, Hasegawa, the Hasegawa, Grayson Hasegawa. Grayson Hasegawa is one of the most powerful men in America, the proverbial captain of industry. He's into tech, pharma, broadcasting, agriculture, you name it. But what put him in the top 1% of the top 1%? was developing a cheap, efficient way to take the salt out of seawater. Global water crises over and done with. As a result, the man is richer than God. I give Audrey my own variation on the oh my God face. She starts scurrying around the foyer space, looking closely at all the furnishings, turning around curtains like she's looking for price tags, and running her fingers along the lip of a pair of faces that come up to her waist. Your agent didn't tell you who you were performing for, she asked. Nope. That's messed up, yeah, she says. Audrey then does a pirouette in the middle of the room with her eyes closed. I can't believe I'm doing a pirouette in Grayson Hasegawa's house. 
Yeah, I say, and you're gonna get us grand jetted right into the slammer if you're not careful. Audrey stops and grabs both my hands, reverting to her way too loud stage whisper. This is too cool, a voice from neither one of us says. I know the feeling. We turn lightning quick to face the voice. Both of us are cheeks candy apple red. At that moment, a precise looking woman in a crisp white blouse, black pencil skirt and high sheen pumps enters from an adjoining room. She extends her hand, which I take with a single shake. Her hand is so small and delicate, my own feels like an oven mitt. Audrey, in full embarrassment mode, shakes her hand like she's working an antique water pump. The woman, clearly enjoying our embarrassment, smiles and says, I am Devin Nichols, Mr. Hasegawa's personal assistant. Please come with me. We follow a step behind her through a magnificently appointed study, complete with an enormous globe, Renaissance art, furniture to die for, and a large wall monitor. The audio is low, but a quick glance reveals the unmistakable opening credits to Death Warrant. Crap, I think to myself. I am performing for Grayson Hasegawa and competing against the most popular show in the world. What the hell, you play the hand you're dealt. I notice Hasegawa's assistant gives the screen a disapproving stare and sense that she is debating whether to turn the monitor off, but the moment passes. Out the door and into a smaller room we go, which is evidently a library. Bookshelves line two of the walls, and an iron and wood ladder mounted on rolling track sit sidely waiting for someone to climb aboard to access the lonely books closest to the ceiling. Ms. Nichols asks us to wait there for a moment and exits through the far door. After the escapade in the foyer, Audrey stands stock still, while I take the opportunity to give the place a closer examination, being a bit of a book fiend myself. In the early part of the century, e-books became a thing, and there were concerns that physical books would go the way of the dinosaurs, but luckily the fad faded. Evidently, people like the experience of turning pages, Hasegawa included. The shelves are packed to the gills, but there is something funky about the books. Normally in this type of library, every book would be a leather-bound beauty embossed with gold leaf. There is no shortage of those, but I can also see that many of the books look utterly ordinary, like you might find at your local bookstore or county library. There's even a scattering of paperbacks, and based on their condition, they've all been read. I pull one out and look it over. It's a thriller that was all the rage last summer. Seemed all the stay-at-home moms had a copy while they sunned by the community pool. One of the biggest bazillionaires in the world reads cheap dime store novels. That is so badass. I set the book back moments before Ms. Nichols re-enters and beckons us with a wave. It's time for the rules of engagement. I've done my share of corporate events and parties. The higher the profile, the stricter the rules. Ms. Nichols says, Speaking on behalf of Mr. Hasegawa, I would like to thank you again for being available on such short notice. No problem, I say. Glad I can fill the void. Mr. Hasegawa is a big fan of your particular line of work and is very much looking forward to your performance. That's the best kind of audience, I say. Is there anything you will need? A table, chair, water, a beat. Something stronger, she says with a grin. Tempting, I say, but I'm good. 
How big is the room and how will it be laid out? I'll take a gin and tonic if you're asking, says Audrey, while I die a thousand deaths for her impertinence. Miss Nichols doesn't seem to mind the request and nods. Certainly, there's an open bar in the ballroom. She turns to me. That is where you will be performing. There are about 100 people all sitting at tables. And am I to presume Mr. Hasegawa will be sitting at the front? Correct, says a new voice from our left. I turn to see what by all accounts is a handsome man striding toward us with a pleasant grin. He reaches out his hand, which I take, and he steps in and slowly shakes it, his left hand wrapped over the top. It's remarkable how such a simple gesture disarms me and completely puts me at ease. The assistant nods in the man's direction. Mr. Hasegawa, Miss Percival, she then turns to Audrey. And Audrey steps up and presents her hand like he's supposed to kiss it or something. Atwood, Audrey Atwood. Mr. Hasegawa takes her hand and gives her a courteous nod. Miss Atwood? I think if Audrey's cheeks were any redder, she might spontaneously combust. Grayson Hasegawa looks exactly like he does on television. Mid-sixties, salt and pepper hair, still thick and perfectly coiffed. He's wearing a dove gray sports coat over a pale blue Oxford, the top button undone. Business casual, he's clearly of Asian descent, Japanese, but not 100%. His eyes are almost black, which at any other moment would give him a sober, no-nonsense appearance, if it wasn't for his mischievous grin. Yep, mischievous, that's the best way I can describe it. Miss Percival, he says amiably, I am so looking forward to your performance. He stops and places a thoughtful index finger to his lip. Tell me, how long have you been a mentalist? Performing, about 10 years. And this is your full-time profession, he asks. It's not exactly a nine-to-five job, but it's what pays the bills. You don't strike me as a nine-to-fiver yourself. I'm feeling bold. Hasegawa seems to enjoy the exchange. Not anymore, he says. I glance around the room. You've got a beautiful home here, and I love your library. Hasegawa looks both proud and slightly surprised. A fellow book lover. I nod. I'm lost without a good book. Did I see a copy of The Great Gatsby on your shelf? 1925, first edition. He nods and smiles even broader. I'm impressed. Most people these days seem more interested in their optics than reading a good book. I turn and look back towards the bookshelves. There were some great authors in 25, well, 25 from the last century. Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Agatha Christie. Hasegawa offers me a patient smile. Do tell. Did you know Paul Bunyan was written in 1925? I ask. Hasegawa laughs out loud at this. A piece of literary trivia that I will no doubt use at dinner parties for the rest of my life. The assistant lightly touches her boss's arm. Mr. Hasegawa. Hasegawa acknowledges the assistant with a nod. Yes, of course, I shouldn't ignore my guests. He looks back to Autry and me and gives us a short bow. Ladies, if you'll excuse me. And then he gives me a quick smile. Break a leg, he says before he turns and leaves. As he passes into the study, I spot him through the door taking notice of the monitor playing death warrant.
It doesn't take a mentalist to notice the negative change in his body language. He gives a terse command and the monitor blinks off. With a short shake of his head, he regroups and leaves my field of vision. I look to Miss Nichols. He's not what I was expecting, I say. The assistant nods and smiles. A common refrain. Seriously, I say. He's like, I don't know, a regular guy. Someone you'd want to have a beer with. I know, right, pipes in Audrey. You'd never know he was crazy rich, except, of course, for the thousand-dollar shoes. I throw Audrey a withering glare. The assistant leans in conspiratorially and whispers, 3,000, actually. Both Audrey and I do a double take on this, but I regroup and get back to business. I don't suppose my performance will be recorded, will it? Not recorded, but the performance will be on camera. They're located throughout the house. And the video feed will be sent to monitors elsewhere in the house? Ms. Nichols gives me a puzzled smile. Yes, the signal will be sent to monitors throughout the house so that the kitchen staff and other service employees may be able to watch as well. Why? Now it's my turn to give the coy smile. You'll see. She seems to find my answer acceptable and gestures for us to follow her. She leads us through a series of halls until we enter what I must presume is the ballroom. And calling it merely a ballroom does not do it justice. It should be called the exquisite room. First off, it's enormous, the size of a royal wedding reception hall, with floor-to-ceiling windows lining the far wall, with a spectacular view of the city below the West Hills. The floor is arranged with about a dozen round event-style tables, each covered in burgundy linen, with extravagant blown glass centerpieces, each different from one another. The crowd is scattered throughout the room, some sitting, some standing, all dressed to the nines. Mr. Hasegawa, the birthday boy, is comparatively underdressed, but that's understandable. Nobody wants to come to a Grayson Hasegawa shindig and be the one wearing blue when everyone else wears black. And when the party's for you at your house and you're footing the bar tab, you can wear whatever you like, thank you very much. Audrey's dress fits in reasonably well. My outfit, not so much. But I don't mind, I know my place, I'm the help. Ms. Nichols tells me, you will be performing in, she checks her watch, 10 minutes, will that give you time to prepare? I nod, yes, that will be fine, thank you. Excellent. She gestures to the room. Please make yourselves at home. I will announce you when it's time to begin. She then turns to Audrey. And now for your gin and tonic. Come this way. She leads Audrey away, who peeks over her shoulder at me with one last wide-eyed look. I'm glad she's enjoying herself. I wander the room aimlessly, trading polite grins here and there. That game I play at the Zombine, guessing customers' stories, I could have a field day in here. Everyone here is either a mover or a shaker. Some probably both. The formal attire makes it more challenging. Everyone's dressed similarly. But I found that the well-heeled tend to put on airs and try a smidge too hard to be charming. They're like the girl who wears too much makeup, too high of heels and too short a skirt, trying to look pretty, only to end up looking cheap, tawdry, and desperate. It's a Hamptons version of the same thing. The diamonds are a tad bigger than they have to be. Watch a few conversations, see who's avoiding eye contact with whom, who's pointing and whispering, 
and who's being a little too touchy-feely. And it doesn't take long to dial in who's in Dutch with the missus, who's sleeping with someone else's wife, or who wants to. Of course, sometimes you even get to see it all play out in real time, complete with the gasp, the drink thrown in the face, and the dramatic exit from the room. It's good theater, but frankly, I'd rather not have the competition. Speaking of competition, I notice a few guests giving furtive glances to their optics, clearly trying to get in sneak peeks of the death warrant episode playing at that very moment. Nobody wants to be caught watching television during a Grayson Hasegawa party, but even the rich and famous have morbid curiosity. The looky-loos are few and discreet. I am glad, for nothing is worse than trying to hold a crowd's attention when half are looking at their optics. I scan the room to see if there are any ideal candidates to bring up on stage. I spot a few possibles. A quick check of my watch tells me it's almost showtime, so I start moving my way back to the front of the room, near a microphone stand. I set my purse over at the foot of a gloss black baby grand piano, sporting some propped open sheet music. Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 3, supposedly one of the most technically challenging piano concertos ever. Don't ask me how I know that. Another useless piece of trivia that made a nest in my head. I wonder if Hasegawa can play the rock, or if it's only for show. Before I can give this deeper consideration, Miss Nichols steps up to the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would please take your seats, our entertainment is about to begin. The crowd begins herding to the tables, and the air is filled with the sound of chair feet scraping out and back in. Grayson Hasegawa is sitting front and center, next to an astonishingly beautiful woman, who undoubtedly is his wife. She's probably in her mid-forties, but could pass for a decade less. Her hair is slate gray, but still thick and lustrous. She has laugh lines that could have easily been erased with Botox, but she evidently has the confidence to wear them with pride. She's wearing a deep red dress that looks like it was poured out of a bottle of Pinot Noir, the perfect complement to her hair. And peeking out from the hair that's gathered on her slim shoulders are diamond stud earrings that are large enough to capture your attention, but not so big as to feel like they're shouting. A tasteful platinum necklace drapes elegantly below her neck, drawing your eyes to what's below. But here's the kicker, she doesn't have big boobs. It almost seems like a prerequisite for the arm candy of super rich alpha males to have significant others, who can also double as a flotation device. Hasegawa's squeeze? B cup, maybe, but perfect at least from my eye, and I've seen my share of boobs over the years. She casually rests a hand on his knee. It says, mine. The crowd has quieted, and everyone's attention is front and center. This is the moment that I relish, where the room is filled with equal parts curiosity and skepticism. Thank you, says Ms. Nichols. And now, may I please introduce your host and the man who refuses to reveal his true age, she holds for polite laughs. Grayson Hasegawa. The crowd gives the appropriate amount of cheers and applause as the guest of honor gives a peck on the cheek of his wife, walks to the front, and takes the mic from his assistant. Thank you, Devon, he says to her as she steps back respectfully, stage left. Hasegawa then turns to the crowd. 
And thank you for joining me for yet another of one too many birthdays, the audience responds with slightly excessive laughs. I have a special entertainment for you tonight. As many of you know, I am fascinated with magic. Illusionists, mentalists, magicians, I love being... He pauses here, searching for the right word. Surprised. No, better yet, astonished. He turns his eyes toward me and says, And I can't wait to be astonished tonight. He turns back to the crowd. May I introduce to you Ms. Frankie Percival? The crowd gives me a warm welcome, and I stride across to the mic, give Hasegawa's hand a quick shake, and turn to face the curiosity seekers. When performing on stage at a theater, the spotlights make it nearly impossible to see the faces of your audience outside of the front few rows. But here in this room, I can see everyone. The closest table is only 15 feet away, and the furthest may be 50. And all eyes are on me. I stand for a moment and slowly run my eyes across the crowd, making eye contact with as many people as possible, finding that connection, putting them at ease. When you're sitting in the audience before the performance begins, you always wonder if the person on stage is going to stink and you have this little zing of unease. I channel all my energy into one quality, charm. Get them to like you right out of the gate and the battle is halfway won. What a fine looking collection of men and women. It's like a convention of the beautiful people, my goodness. I always like to slip in a, uh, my goodness, or a, uh, heavens to Betsy, when I can. Charm. Tonight is going to be all about time. And as a wise man said many, many years ago, aside from Velcro, time is the most mysterious substance in the universe. This, as always, gets a chuckle. I then slip into my slightly more serious face, my imparter of sage wisdom face. Time is free but it's priceless and we are all obliged to spend it. But spend it wisely, because contrary to popular belief, time is not money. You can always earn more money, but you don't get more time. Time is finite. But, at this point, I hold up my right index finger and pause for effect. It is predictable. It is consistent. I then turn my eyes to Mr. Hasegawa. And it is weighing heavily on the mind of one particular person in this room. Right, Mr. Birthday Boy? Hasegawa chuckles and nods. The crowd laughs along. I walk toward him, my eyes never leaving his, while I continue my patter. Birthdays are the one day that, as we become older, we simultaneously celebrate and curse. I stop right in front of him. So let us take this evening and bring time to its knees, to show it who's boss. I hold out my hand to Hasegawa. Come with me. He glances at his wife, who nods permission, and then he takes my hand and allows me to lead him back out in front of the crowd. We turn and face the room. Most mentalists like a high-speed patter. I guess they feel it keeps the energy up and attention spans filled. That's not my style. I move at a more deliberate pace. I want the audience to feel a sense of wonderment that you can't create if you're talking a mile a minute. How do you feel, I say to Hasegawa. Great, he replies. You feeling good? Feel fine? You look fine. I feel like a million bucks, he says. I can't resist this softball. 
Probably more like a few billion, I say with an eye to the crowd. They all roar at the cheap gag. Hey, you can't ignore fruit hanging that low. Do you have a watch, I ask. He holds up his wrist. I do, he says. It's big and chunky, probably worth more than what I pull down in two months' time. Excellent. If you would be so kind, please take it off for a moment, I say. What time is it right now? He looks at it. 7.05. Very good, I say. First, look at me. I want you to connect your mind with mine. Just mine, no one else's. Mine and mine alone. Can you do that? Hasegawa stares directly into my eyes. Yes. We hold like this for a moment before I break away. Fine, I think we've made the necessary connection. Now, I want you to reset the watch to a random time. Give the dial plenty of spins. Don't pick an easy time like three o'clock or midnight. Pick a time that's a little out of whack. He pulls the dial and begins to turn it. That's it, I say. Plenty of spins, plenty. You're doing fine. I then step away from him and face the crowd. He's behind me and to my right. I then say, now set the watch to the random time you chose. I pause. Done? Done, he says. I still don't face him, but keep my attention forward to the audience. Good. Now take your watch down to your wife and show her the time. Then show it to the person next to her, and then the person next to that person. Hasegawa walks past me, and I purposefully turn my head away when I spot him in my peripheral vision. I make a show of it to ensure everyone sees I'm not trying to catch a glimpse of the watch face. Once he's well past, I see him show the watch to his wife and the others around her. I say, nobody say what time the watch is set for, okay? Now, I want the people who have seen what time the watch now shows to tell the person next to them. It's going to be like a great big game of telephone. I watch as the members of the audience quietly whisper to the person next to them. Only a few moments pass before the information has spread to the far corners of the room. I then invite Hasegawa back up front with me. I physically maneuver him to my side. I found that most people like having hands laid on them. They enjoy being touched by another person. Some are uncomfortable with it, but by and large, most seem to like the human connection. I glance back over my shoulder at my handbag and say, Spencer, music. At which point, the optic in my bag begins playing a low, hypnotic tune. I turn to the crowd. Spencer is my optic, I say with a wink and a smile. They all nod and smile in return. I think most people name their optic. I then say to Hasegawa, may I sync Spencer with your home sound system? Hasegawa nods and I say, Spencer, sync with home system. Suddenly, the quiet, tinny-sounding music fills the room, lush and full, but not too loud. Just enough for ambiance. I spent months searching for the right cuts of music for my shows, did research, studied, spoke with audio engineers. I wanted to make sure it had the proper effect on the audience. Based on what I am seeing in the eyes of the crowd, it is doing the job. The musical notes, ethereal without being eerie, wash over the room like an incoming tide. The engineers I spoke with referred to this as deep theta wave music. No drums, no rhythm to speak of, simply electronically produced tones that blend and weave like an oral tapestry. 
Evidently, certain frequencies affect the human brain extremely specifically. There is a happiness frequency, a sadness frequency. Pretty much every emotion you can think of, there is a frequency for it. Right now, I am doing the audio equivalent of slipping the audience a mickey, subtly drugging them with music, releasing their serotonin. I am enchanting them. I turn to face Hasegawa and place my hands on his shoulders. I look deeply into his eyes. I'm giving him the full treatment. I stare slightly longer than what is comfortable. Making eye contact for an appropriate length of time is a delicate balancing act. Too short and we look shifty, too long and we seem overly intimate. I learned that the preferred gaze duration is a tad over three seconds. Give or take, at about four seconds, I shake my head like I don't like the signal I'm getting. What time would you have chosen, I ask rhetorically. What time would be important to you? How would you choose a time? I turn my gaze back to him and say, I want you to think of the time you set on the watch. Can you see it? Can you see the time? My speech pattern is gathering steam, becoming ever so slightly more insistent. Hasegawa simply nods his agreement. He is fully engaged. Look into my eyes. See the time in your head. Now project that time directly into me. Project it into my head, my soul, my very being. Right on cue, the music swells a bit. My timing is freaking awesome. Hasegawa stares lasers into my eyes, and I return the gaze, never blinking. I tighten my grip on his shoulders. The audience can see it. They can see that my concentration is physically taxing me. At that moment, I let go and stagger back, shaking my head. I bend at the waist and place my hands on my knees, like the exertion was too much. I take three deep breaths, straighten up, take one last deep cleansing breath, take another step back, and roll up my shirt sleeves. Shit's getting real. I turn back to face Hasegawa, pause, and tip my head slightly. I hold up my right index finger and wave it at him, like I'm scolding him. You're blocking, I say. You're blocking the image. Hasegawa raises his hands in a helpless gesture and shakes his head. I turn to the audience, give them a look that might say bullshit without saying bullshit, and give my head a shake again. I run my hands through my hair, recheck my rolled up shirt sleeves, and then realize I need to get serious here. I crack my knuckles and begin unbuttoning my vest. I slip my arms through and proceed to walk toward the piano where my bag sits. The moment my back is turned to the audience, I hear gasps. Approximately a hundred, all in unison. I stop and turn to face them, looking utterly confused. I hear a few voices from the crowd involuntarily speak. The time, they say. At which point the murmuring begins, followed by the laughter, followed by the applause and cheers. I stand there looking even more perplexed, then peek over my shoulder to my own back, and there it is, a piece of paper pinned to my shirt, with the time 9.25 printed in large, bold, handwritten characters. Ha, huh, I say, forgot about that. The room erupts, nailed it. The old guess the time bit always floors them. Of course, it never occurs to them that I scrawled that note an hour ago. 
or that I had a conversation with Hasegawa in the library and mentioned the numbers 9, 2, 5, or 25 12 times within one minute, or that I slipped in the words fine, time, mind, and mine, which all sound remarkably like the word nine over 20 times in the lead up to the bit. It's amazing what you can persuade people to say. I swear, sometimes I feel like an Australian shepherd herding sheep. I continue with the clueless act and step back over to Hasegawa, who is smiling and shaking his head in wonder. I place my hand on his shoulder and turn to face the crowd. Let us now continue with our theme of time. I then turn back to Hasegawa. Let's see that watch of yours again. He dutifully holds up his wrist. What time is it now, I ask. Uh, 9.25, he says, and gets a laugh. Shoot, that's right, I forgot about that. I turn to the audience. Anyone, the time? One shouts back. 7.07, 8, corrects another. Okay, I say, 7.08. I then look back at Hasegawa. Please reset your watch for 7.08. He does so, and I check it. Good. I then give him a drawn-out look, along with a deep exhale, cluing in the audience that something big is about to take place. You ready for the big stuff now? I ask him. He nods. I then take my hand off his shoulder, take a step back, and gesture toward the crowd with a dramatic sweep of my left arm. In the next few moments, I am going to drastically alter time and space within the confines of this room. How, I ask, by making every person in this room except our birthday boy here vanish. Again, how? By jumping forward to the time when everyone's gone home for the evening. I fix Hasegawa with a pointed stare. But to you, it will happen in an instant. To you, they will be here, and then they will be gone, quite literally in the blink of an eye. I then glance coyly back at the crowd. But I couldn't live with myself if I ruined such a good party, so I'll bring everyone back again just as fast. I turn once more back to Hasegawa. Interested? This I have to see, he says. But that's just it, I reply. You won't. I step away from him and fetch an empty chair from a forward table and set it down by my subject. Please have a seat, I say. You're going to be out for a few hours, so I want you to be comfortable. I pause like I'm giving what I just said some thought and say, well, I'm compressing those few hours into a single second, but it'll be a few hours in the purest scientific sense. Ready? He shrugs like he doesn't have a choice and takes a seat, at which point the real fun begins. I squat down next to Hasegawa and say to him, have you ever been hypnotized? Never, he says. I believe you have. Have you ever been on a long drive on some lonely road that keeps going and going, and suddenly realize you missed your exit 15 minutes ago? You have experienced highway hypnosis. It's a real thing. Your conscious mind begins to drift, and your subconscious mind takes the wheel. Or how about when you're so deeply focused on a book or TV show that your wife will smack you on the shoulder and say she's been yelling at you going on a minute, and you never heard a word she said? Okay, that's just being a husband, but again, it is a form of hypnosis. I spin in my crouch to face the crowd. Time for a quick history lesson. 
Hypnosis is ancient, been around for over 4,000 years, invented by the Egyptians. Hypno means sleep, and gnosis means knowledge. Feel free to drop that bit of info at your next trivia night. I glance back over my shoulder at Hasegawa. You're a pretty sharp man, yes? Well-educated? Of course you are. That's good. Back to the audience. Smarter people make better hypnosis subjects. People who are dumber than a cubic foot of gravel don't hypnotize worth a damn. In a moment, I'm going to be telling my subject here to relax, focus and listen to the sound of my voice and only my voice and block out other sounds around him. It takes at least a marginal level of intelligence to do that. I look back at Hasegawa, hopefully. You do qualify, yes? He nods and smiles. Good, then let's get started. I'm back up on my feet again and ask Ms. Nichols, who has been standing dutifully in the wings, to please dim the lights. Within seconds, the room darkens to the equivalent of dusk. I step forward a couple of feet and squint into the crowd and say, is Mr. Hasegawa's lawyer in the audience? Yes? Okay, don't worry, I won't make him do anything he isn't willing to do. Nothing that's going to create a scandal on social media by tomorrow morning. This prompts a slightly nervous laugh from the crowd. Everyone has a built-in toggle switch in their head, a safety valve that won't allow you to do something under hypnosis you wouldn't normally do when you're not hypnotized. Back to Hasegawa. Do I have your consent to be hypnotized? You do, he says. I pause a moment, look him dead in the eye, giving him an extra beat to reconsider, but he stares right back with a smile. I believe he's looking forward to this. Okay, then, let's get this show on the road. I slowly pace around my subject. Did you know that when you are hypnotized, your brain is flatlining, even though your senses are increased by about 400%. It's true. I am about to kick your subconscious mind into overdrive. I stand behind Hasegawa and say, please put your feet firmly on the floor and your hands on your lap. The process of hypnosis, putting people under, can happen in as little as a few minutes if the subject is willing. Ideally, I will take upwards of seven to 10 minutes to put someone into a trance. Sounds quick, right? On stage, it's an eternity, but you find ways to keep the audience engaged while you go through the process. It's lots of repetition. Listen to my voice and my voice only, that sort of thing. Hypnosis really is just getting the subject to relax and then cranking the power of suggestion up to 11. Anyone can learn the basics in a few hours, I, on the other hand, immersed myself in the discipline deeply for a full year when I got into my profession, and I'm constantly honing my craft and studying to keep me sharp. I could put Hasegawa out in a couple of minutes if I really stepped on the gas, but this is a big fish, and I don't want to mess it up. I take my time. Grayson Hasegawa lives in a state-of-the-art house, which means the heating and cooling systems are beyond those of mortal men. But even top-of-the-line AC takes a few minutes to adapt to a room of 100 people. That many people in close quarters means the temperature goes up. A slightly warm room helps with hypnosis. My music slowly tapered off a couple of minutes ago, so the room is deathly quiet. Another necessity. The crowd is doing their part by not so much as coughing. I've got the ideal environment, and it pays off. 
Hasegawa is out in short order, and I tell the audience as much. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Hasegawa is currently in a deep state of hypnosis and is open to suggestion. I pause. Any employees want to raise? Scattered laughter ripples through the room. No? Okay, thought I'd check because he's ripe for the picking. I then shift back into a more serious demeanor and step around behind Hasegawa, speaking to him. When I count to three, you are going to wake up and feel as though nothing has happened. You will have no recollection of being hypnotized. However, you will still listen and go along with everything I say, okay? I will also ask you what time it is. When you check your watch, you will not notice that five minutes have passed since you last checked. To you, it will be as if you sat down here on stage a moment or so ago. Lastly, when I say the word perfect, you will fall back asleep. The word perfect. Ready? One, two, three. And I snap my fingers. Instantly, Hasegawa's eyes blink open, and he smiles. I turn back to him. How are you feeling? I feel great. Ready to be hypnotized, I ask. I've been ready, he says. The crowd chuckles. Hasegawa has no idea that he's already been under. Excellent, I say. Now, to begin the time-space compression, I will need you to check your watch. What does it say? He looks. 7.15. I say, perfect. He goes out like a light. I then turn to the audience and say, Ladies and gentlemen, now things will get interesting for Mr. Hasegawa. Grayson Hasegawa wakes up and looks around the empty ballroom. Empty except for myself sitting by the piano. When I see him looking my way, I stretch my arms above my head and yawn. Back again? Good. I rise from my chair and walk over to the clearly puzzled birthday boy. Where is everyone? He asks. Gone, I say. He looks at his watch. One in the morning. He looks at a clock on the wall for confirmation. He then rubs his eyes like that will magically help. I don't understand. What don't you understand, I ask evenly. They're all gone, he says, pointing to the empty chairs and tables. Can you blame them? It's late. But, but they were just here. His voice is remarkably calm. For most people, having a room full of close personal friends and relatives vanish in the blink of an eye would be a tad unsettling. But Grayson Hasegawa handles it like a boss. Yes, they were here, four hours ago. When you fell asleep, it seemed a shame to end the party so early, so we carried on. And you looked so peaceful sitting here that no one could bring themselves to wake you up. I hope you don't mind. I'm seeing clear confusion in his eyes, and that's usually a precursor to panic. So I place my hand on his shoulder and say, I'm supposed to tell you that everyone had a wonderful time. It was perfect. He goes out like a light. Grayson Hasegawa's confusion is understandable. That confusion is also why I have a job. A person accepts the world that they are presented. People are very believing, especially if they choose to believe. To Hasegawa, a ballroom full of people vanished in the blink of an eye. Why would he think that he'd been out for only several minutes? Why would he presume that all his guests were herded out of the room and watching on monitors in adjoining rooms, or that timepieces were reset? Because I told him otherwise. 
Grayson Hasegawa wakes up and looks around at the full ballroom. He blinks and shakes his head, like you see people do in the movies when they can't quite grasp what they're seeing. I'm standing to his left, looking down at him completely neutral. I said, what time is it, I say. Hasegawa looks at his watch, looks up at the clock on the wall, and then looks up at me with the most blank stare you can possibly imagine. 7.15, he says flatly. Good, I say brightly. Then are you ready for me to do the whole time-space thing? But, but you just did, he says. Excuse me, I say. I haven't done anything. I turn to the crowd. And don't you think we owe it to your guests to show them what I already promised? You don't want to make me out to be a liar, liar, pants on fire, do you? No, 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 says Hasegawa. A moment ago, I was sitting here. I closed my eyes for an instant, and suddenly everyone was gone. The room was empty. I look perplexed. Empty, I say with no question mark. A statement. This room, empty. No one here. Yes, he says. They were all gone. I checked my watch, and it was one o'clock in the morning. The room was empty. There was no one here but you. Hmm, that is strange, I say. Maybe the whole time-space thing really did happen, and all of us aren't even aware of it. I motion to the crowd. Did any of you notice anything happen? They all shrug and murmur amongst themselves. I turn back to Hasegawa. See, no one else noticed anything weird going on. You sure you didn't imagine it? Hasegawa shakes his head firmly. I didn't imagine it. It happened. You were standing right there, and suddenly you were over by the piano and everyone was gone. You said I was asleep the whole time. I did? Okay, now you're freaking me out. How is it that I don't remember any of that? Wait, is it possible I hypnotized myself? Wow. I turned to the audience. You were here. You saw everything. Is that what happened? Lots of shrugs and shaking of heads. Ladies and gentlemen, if that is true, then you have just witnessed something that until now was said to be impossible. A hypnotist hypnotizing themselves. And wouldn't you know it, I slept through the whole thing. That's perfect. Out goes Hasegawa. Grayson Hasegawa wakes up and looks around at the full great room with the entire audience on their feet, clapping and cheering. I stand in front, bowing. I turn to see Hasegawa smiling and looking remarkably refreshed. How are you feeling, I ask. I feel great, he says. The audience ties down, and I say to Hasegawa, would you like to know what just happened? Yes, please, he says. You said please, so I will tell you. I shrug. Nothing much, really. I tried the whole time-space bit, but it didn't take. I didn't want to disappoint the audience, so I went with plan B. I got you to squawk like a chicken. Then I made you think you were a martial arts expert. You had some damn fine kung fu moves, if I do say so myself. After that, some run-of-the-mill hijinks. You know, made you think your feet were frozen to the floor. That was particularly funny. You kept pulling at your legs, trying to move, and they wouldn't budge. You eventually took your shoes off so you could move. We gave them back, of course. Everyone seemed to have a lovely time. Isn't that right, everyone? I turn to the audience, and the place erupts. The cheers are deafening. Frankie, one. Non-believers, zero.
Autry and I enjoy the drive home in companionable silence, no words necessary. When I drop her off, she leans back in on the rolled down window. That fucking brilliant. I don't recall ever hearing anything that's made me happier. Chapter 8 Crushed by a falling safe? Offers a woman between bites of a jelly donut. What are we making, a cartoon? Replies the man across the table. He crunches up his coffee cup and tosses it onto the table with the half dozen other crumpled cups. We already did the falling piano bit. Why not drop an anvil on her or a large crate stenciled Acme? It'd be funny, the woman offers. Go viral instantly. Sheila Graveman lets her creative team banter back and forth. They've been at it for a good 30 minutes. And even though she's already decided how Frankie Percival is going to shrug off her mortal coil, she likes to allow her team to stretch their creative muscles. Bow and arrow, totally medieval, shouts Jelly Donut. Decapitation from a flying pane of glass, replies the coffee crumpler. Parachute mishap, shark attack. Sheila has to give them credit. They think outside the box, just like she taught them. Letting them kick around ideas like a soccer ball is good mental exercise, but it was time to rein things in. Splendid ideas, all of them, says Sheila. But the good Ms. Percival has already provided the method for us. What do you mean? asks Jelly Donut. Sheila taps the table and fresh data appears on the surface. These are the notes from her meeting with Myrna. Pay attention to the areas I highlighted. The two team members read the notes to themselves. Within a minute, they are grinning from ear to ear. Coffee Crumpler looks up. You're bringing in the secret weapon? Sheila simply nods. I can totally see it, says Crumpler. It's appropriate. It's poetic, says Donut. Sheila Graveman crosses her arms across her chest and allows herself a self-satisfied smile. It's perfect. Chapter 9, March. Today I visit my brother, which means I will be had. That's the emotion I have named, had. Happy combined with sad. I suppose I could have gone with another hybrid, sappy, but that's already a word and doesn't apply here. I pull off the main road into the now familiar entrance and start looking for that most elusive of creatures, the mythical close-by parking place. The main building slowly passes on my right, large, white, very hospitally, which makes sense because that's what it is. Although I do have to give the architect credit for making an effort. The building is not at all intimidating, which is probably a good idea being that it's a children's hospital. Don't get the wrong idea. My kid brother is not a child. He's, as he likes to say, well-seasoned. And he's not a patient. He volunteers. Yet again, I do not find the mythical parking beast. In 10 years, never have, and instead find a narrow spot between two hulking SUVs whose drivers clearly didn't understand that the purpose of the stripes on the pavement is to park between them. I'm a good three blocks away from the closest entrance and begin hoofing it. Five minutes later, I'm panting through the sliding glass doors into the lobby. I've always liked the lobby here, the designers knew what they were doing. The walls depict a kid-friendly forest, 
and stylish artificial trees sprout from the colorful industrial carpet. Nature and animals are the recurring themes throughout the hospital. You can't turn a corner without running smack dab into a sculpture or sign in the shape of a friendly furry creature. I sign in at the front desk and say hi to the receptionist, Lou, today. He's an elderly man, gotta be pushing 80, who also volunteers. Lou greets me with his standard, for no more beautiful face shall grace these halls than that of the fair Frankie. Lou's a peach. How's it hanging, Lou? Low and to the left, he says. Say hi to the boy for me. He was already here before I started my shift. The boy. That's how Lou always refers to my brother. Not Galen, his name, just the boy. Maybe because Lou is old as dirt, and any male under 60 is considered a boy in his book. I take the elevator to the third floor and head over to the hippo wing of the hospital. All the wings are named after cute animals. There's the hippo wing, panda, dolphin, and koala. I wonder if the hospital staff know that hippos are incredibly dangerous and kill around 3,000 people a year. Probably not. Although the hospital does everything in its power to make the hippo wing as bright, cheerful, and non-threatening as possible, it's impossible to hide the fact that it's the grimmest wing in the building, the cancer wing. This is where small children are treated for adult, unfair diseases. I find Galen in the hangout room. It's a big rec room with beanbag chairs, a ping pong table, and card tables. Currently, the card tables are covered in arts and crafts supplies, scissors, glue sticks, glitter pens, colored paper. It always makes my heart glad to see that kids can still enjoy making things with their hands in this digital world. Sitting at that table is Galen and a young girl, at least I think it's a girl, with a bandana covering the no hair head. It's a little tough to tell, especially when the kids haven't reached puberty yet, so there are no physical clues to suggest male or female. Once I'm within 10 feet, I can see it's a girl. Great cheekbones and no Adam's apple. She's carefully cutting out some shape from a piece of orange construction paper, utterly focused on making her cuts precise, as evident by the slow, methodical cuts and her tongue peeking out the side of her mouth. Galen looks up when he hears me shuffle forward. Ah, a guest, he chirps. He's wearing sunglasses, so I can't see his blue eyes. His hair is its typically unkempt, shaggy, dishwater blonde, about shoulder length. His cane leans unneeded for the moment against the table. I can see the ivory handle peeking up to the left of his leg. Hey, Galen, I say, trying to sound more upbeat than I feel. Who's the kid? I always try to be casual and a little flippant around them. They are hit with so many serious people there. Galen provides introductions as the girl looks up from her project. Her hazel eyes flicker with polite curiosity. Chloe meets, uh, Frankie, I say, filling the void. Yes, Frankie, says Galen, as the girl gives a smile and wave and goes back to her precision cutting work. What you making, Chloe, I ask. Poster, she says without looking up. Poster for what? Inspiration, she says. Galen jumps in. What's it gonna say, Chloe? Never, says the girl and she raises her fist in the air with a triumphant smile. That's right, says Galen. Never, as in never quit, never give up. He then turns his sun-glassed gaze to Chloe, 
because what are you doing? Kicking Luke's ass, says Chloe. Galen leans in and stage whispers to Chloe, I don't think you should say ass in front of guests. Sorry, whispers Chloe back with an insider's grin. She then looks up to me. Luke is leukemia. Ah, I say, as if being let in on a deep, dark secret. Chloe grabs a glue stick, pops the top, and gives the base a couple of twists. Nuts, out of glue. She hops up from her chair. I'm gonna restock, she says. Back in a few, and she scampers out of the room. Galen watches her leave like a proud father, then turns to me and pulls out a chair. Take a load off, he says. I sit and look around the room. It's empty now. Kinda slow today, I say. Yeah, it gets busy here around lunchtime after morning chemo sessions. He stops for a second, regrouping his thoughts. D did you know that what time you receive chemo can be a m major factor in the effectiveness of the treatment and side effects? No idea, I say. It's true, he says earnestly. It has some, something to do with our, our, what's it called, clock? Circadian, I offer. Yes, circadian clock. How our daily rhythms line up. Evidently, bodies respond better in the morning. I don't know the details, he says with a wave of his hand. I'll take your word for it, I say. My eyes drift down to his right hand resting on the table. It's shaking slightly. Galen, buddy, I ask, nodding toward his hand, trying to sound casual. You taking your meds? He slips his hand back into his lap and gives a noncommittal shrug before changing the subject. So what's new in the world of, uh, mentalism? I've become used to filling in the gaps for him. It's now second nature. Had an amazing show the other night, performed for Grayson Hasegawa himself. No kidding, and Grayson Hasegawa is richest guy in town, richest guy on the West Coast. Top five richest guys in America? Got it, rich guy, he says. Every time he blanks on stuff, it's like someone stabs me with a little needle. Used to be daggers, but over time has become needles. Doesn't hurt so much, but still smarts. I'm also moving ahead with Bosco, I say. Oh yeah, your big trick. Why he remembers some things and not others is a complete mystery to me but the fact he remembers it all is a small victory. I take what I get. Exactly, I say, the big trick. Still not sure how you're going to pull that off without burning off your eyebrows or, you know, losing a limb or something. Don't you worry about me. I'm going to have everything buttoned down. Failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Your motto, he says. That little girl, Chloe, for a kid with leukemia, She's remarkably happy. Galen smiles at this. Amazing, isn't it? I'm always astonished at how resilient kids can be. If I were in their shoes, I'd be a blubbering wreck around the clock. They are tough. So are you, I blurt out quietly, involuntarily. What's that, he says. I fix him with a smile. Nothing. I give him an appraising look. He's thinner than last time. His clothes are hanging on him, but I don't comment. I rise out of the chair and walk over to the windows and look out. It's a fine view of the city. I'm surprised no developers have tried to buy the building out from under the hospital owners so they can replace it with condos. 
You must really like it here, I say to Galen while facing the window. I hear Galen's chair scrape and his slightly off-kilter footsteps. I turn and watch him walking my way. He leans supportively on his cane with his left hand. His right foot drags enough to be noticeable. His cane is gloss black hardwood inlaid with silver filigree and mother of pearl. It looks more like something from a museum. It should, it cost me a fortune, custom made. I figured if my brother was going to have to walk with a cane, it was going to be the most badass looking cane in the world. And it's practical in more ways than one. Hidden in the shaft is a 20 inch pig sticker, a sword. When I bought it for him and pointed out the feature, he obligingly unscrewed the handle, withdrew the sword, and made a few thrust and parry moves to make me happy. You're walking better, I tell him. Am I? Feels the same. Pretty soon you're not going to even need that cane anymore. Nah, it's part of me now. Even if I could walk, uh, normal, I say. Yes, normal, damn it. I was going to finish it eventually. Sorry, don't have all day. People to see, things to do. You are a world-class bitch, he says with a smile. Yes, but I'm your bitch. Wait, that didn't come out right. You know what I mean. We both smile. I love these moments, and it's nice to see he's having one of his good days. We stand there enjoying the comfortable silence for a moment, and then... So, how's mom? He asks. Shit. Mom's dead, Galen, I say, point blank for the umpteenth time in the last ten years. He looks at me for a sec, then nods. A subtle flicker of remembrance appears behind his eyes. That's right, he says in a tone like he just remembered that he had a dental appointment later that afternoon. Chloe shuffles back into the room, freshly stocked up with glue sticks. I take that as my cue and jump at the opportunity to change the subject. Well, I better split. You've got posters to make and Lucas to kick. Galen looks back at Chloe. That we do. He gives me a hug and I tell him that I'll see him later. I stop off at the table on the way out. Keep on rocking it with your bad self, Chloe, and offer her a knuckle bump. She smiles and we tap fists. Chapter 10, The Chat with Myrna. Tell me about your family, says Myrna. Really, I say with arched eyebrows. I thought you guys had a thorough file of me the moment I walked through the front door. Myrna gives a tiny shrug. True, but we don't know everything. Besides, we can glean a lot from one-on-one -on -one conversation. How you talk about your family speaks more than any data we might collect. Fair enough. Where do you want me to start? How about your parents? Okay. My dad died when I was two, liver cancer, so I never knew him. My mom, though, mom was something special. She was cool. Was, says Myrna. She died. Yes, the year after I graduated from high school. Breast cancer. Cancer sucks. It does indeed. You lost both your parents to cancer, so you of all people understand how devastating the loss of a family member can be. I do. Myrna glances at the glass tablet. You have a brother. Yes, and yet you are prepared to put him through that experience again. He's already lost both parents, and now you want him to lose his sister? Ouch, 
I, uh, look, it's for the best. It sounds much lamer than I would hope. How, asks Myrna flatly. This money will completely turn his life around, I say. How, asks Myrna again. I take a deep breath. Your records probably already show that he was in a car accident years back. Myrna looks at the tablet. She makes a couple of swipes, reads for a moment. Yes, 10 years ago. How much detail is there, I ask. Not much, we can't access medical files. I'm not sure I buy that, but I play along. Okay, well, it messed him up pretty bad. Shattered leg, punctured lung, but the biggie were the head injuries. He was in a coma for a week before he woke up, but he's never been the same. How so? I consider the question. To answer that, you need some backstory on my brother. See, Galen was the even one, I was the odd one. He was smart, talented, he was the character in the movie who everyone roots for. He got a 4.0 in high school without any effort. He was the kid who would show up for class and say, a test today, and still ace it. Class valedictorian, it all came so easy for him. He was blessed with my father's academic genes and my mother's social skills. He wasn't just smart, he was likable. He had a way of connecting with everyone he met. He liked to help out. You're supposed to serve something like 40 hours of community service by the time you graduate from high school, right? Myrna shrugs. Well, he had about 200. It was ridiculous. You try living in that shadow. Must have been difficult, says Myrna. But that's just it. It wasn't, I say. I loved that he was so good. I loved that he was so smart. I was so freaking proud of him. Simply being his sister made me look good. And he and I were tight. Brothers and sisters are supposed to fight a lot, but we didn't. He got me. He got my weirdness and encouraged it, just like my mom. So what happened, asks Myrna. He graduated from high school and went off and joined the Peace Corps of all things. But then, get this, he got chomped by a mosquito and got malaria. Bad. By the time he was on his feet again, he figured he could help more people by being stinking rich, so he bailed on the core and applied to a bunch of high-end colleges. Ended up going to Brown University. You know, the forgotten Ivy League school. Cost something like $125,000 a year before room and board. Within four years, he was in debt close to 700 grand. No worries, he thought. He's earning an economics degree, top of his class. He'll be able to pick and choose where he works pull down six figures right out of the gate and be debt-free in no time flat. And then, asks Myrna, knowing full well what happened then. And then everything went to hell, I say. The car accident. Tire blew out crossing a bridge. Car flipped and went headfirst into a support structure. They had to pry him out. It was an accident, says Myrna compassionately. A tragic one, but an accident nonetheless. I don't comment on that, which is not lost on Myrna. That must have been devastating. I give her a no shit look. But also left you angry, she follows up. Again, I don't comment. How long did you stay that way, she asks. Years, but over time that anger dissipated and was replaced with acceptance. But it was hard. The damage to Galen was significant. His memory is crap. 
He can't concentrate for any length of time. He's like an early-onset Alzheimer's patient. In other words, his career as a money-making machine in the world of high finance was over before it even began. And he's saddled with nearly three quarters of a million dollars in debt, says Myrna, sadly. Bingo, I say, and no way to pay it off. Oh, sure, he's had a few jobs. Greeter at Costco, cat wrangler at a pet shelter, bagger at a grocery store, and he volunteers at Children's Hospital. But he doesn't earn enough to put a dent in his debt. Hell, the interest alone is more than he usually makes in a month. I help him out as much as I can, but it's like a bottomless pit. No, the only way out for him is if he lands a big fat windfall. And that's you, says Myrna. And that's me, I reply. Myrna nods sagely. I can understand your reasoning, but aren't there programs for Galen's situation to help him out of his debt? What you're doing is such a drastic measure. Bankruptcy's out. Evidently, there's some bullshit legal exemption tied to his circumstances that prevents him from filing. Ever since financial institutions won that Supreme Court case 50 years ago, giving them carte blanche to create their own rules, it's damn near impossible to plead no dinero. I found some other loan forgiveness programs, but even with their help, he'd be making payments for the rest of his life and the lives of his kids if he ever has any. Instead of being 100% financially screwed, he'd only be 80% screwed. In other words, he's still screwed. So I like to think I'm helping out at least two full generations by signing up to be whacked. I put a smile on this last one to soften the conversation. Myrna picks up on my efforts and gives a smile in return. I understand, she says. I just want to make sure you've exhausted all other avenues before you go down this road. Trust me, I say. I have been trying to figure out a solution to this mess for 10 years now. In my eyes, this is for the best. I pause for a moment. Let me ask you something. Do you have kids? This question does not seem to trouble Myrna. I do, a daughter and two sons. And if one of their lives was on the line, and the only way to save it was for you to offer yours in their place, would you do it? Myrna doesn't miss a beat. Without hesitation, I hold out my hands. I rest my case. But Galen's life isn't forfeit, she says. It will just be more difficult. Semantics, I say. Her comment pisses me off, and I let it show. Think about it. Imagine being so deep in debt that you can never get out, ever. Financial prison, no escape. No one should live like that. She doesn't reply to this, allowing me to vent. My death he can recover from. But day in, day out, living with the stress of wondering if you can afford to keep your lights on, your heat. I take a deep breath, my voice dropping. He's not taking his meds. He's not eating. And I know why. He won't admit it, but I know the reason. Money. He can't afford it. I shake my head. No, just no. Your brother has a generous sister, says Myrna kindly, easing the tension. I hope he fully appreciates the sacrifice you're making. He's sure as hell better, I say, or I'm going to come back and haunt his ass 24-7. Tell me more about your mother, she says. It sounds like you were close. Yeah, we were close. How so? Mom was a character, I say. She really encouraged us to be who we were, 
She was the artistic director for a local community theater, so you can see where I get my hamminess. She loved performing and the discipline that went into it. Community theater is usually where you find people who think they can act, but aren't good enough to do it for a living. But mom overcame that by putting on performances that overshadowed the lack of talent. She wasn't staging My Fair Lady and The Iceman Cometh. She went epic. She was producing Ben-Hur and Gone with the Wind. You should have seen her stage The Burning of Atlanta. The fire marshals were pissed. When she needed extras to fill out her cast of thousands, okay, cast of dozens, she'd tap the local high schools and soup kitchens. If a person could stand and raise a fist, or hold a sign, or keep a semblance of tempo, she'd find a use for them. Her productions became a thing, sold out every time, became must-see events. Sort of a, hey, let's go see how the crazy drama lady pulls off the D-Day invasion from Saving Private Ryan with some duct tape and bailing wire. You sound proud of her, says Myrna. I was crazy proud of her, I say. She could have moved up to bigger theaters, more recognized production houses, but she wasn't interested. She always said that the bigger the theater, the more rules you have to obey. And she hated the idea of some stakeholder telling her what she could or couldn't do. It's funny, she hated rules but loved discipline. She always told Galen and me, discipline yourself and others won't have to. She absolutely demanded good manners and always drove us to create our own destiny. Sounds like quite a woman. Yeah, she was, I say, quite a woman. In fact, my brother and I have a tradition around my mom. Oh, what's that? When we were growing up, mom always made a big deal out of her birthday. She'd circle it on the calendar and write most important day of the year on it. We'd always whip up a big dinner together, and my brother and I would buy a present that we knew she would absolutely connect with. Like what? Well, let's see. One year, we flew in her best friend growing up. They hadn't seen each other in probably 20 years. That one was special. Another time, my brother went online and found a playbill from the first show she was in. We framed it. She got pretty teary about that one. So yeah, her birthday is a big deal to us. But now that she's gone, Myrna asks gently. Nothing's changed, I say. It's still a big deal. My brother usually doesn't remember, but once I remind him, he gets excited about it. Since mom died, we get together, cook a big dinner, usually become sloppy drunk, raise a toast to mom, and watch her favorite old movie. Which is? Auntie Mame, 1958, Rosalind Russell, closest character I've ever found to mom. You seen it? I have not. Mame is a free spirit, an absolute force of nature. Her mantras were, life is a banquet and most poor suckers are starving to death, and live, live, live. That was mom, through and through. When is her birthday? July 7th. Myrna gives me a smile that's tinged with sadness. I already know what she's going to say. I hope you get a chance to celebrate it, at least one more time. Chapter 11. After leaving my brother, I stop by the zombie apocalypse for my medium chai and find a table by the window. There's a copy of some magazine called Mad. On the cover is an illustration of a freckled, red-haired guy with a big gap between his front teeth. 
I flip through a couple of pages and realize it's a humor magazine aimed at teens and young adults. I stop on a bit called Spy vs. Spy, made up of two cartoon characters with long triangular faces and wide-brimmed hats. They look identical, other than the fact that one spy is dressed in white, the other black. Evidently, the whole bit is about each of them trying to kill each other. In this cartoon, one tries dynamite while the other uses a tank. Tank wins. While paging over to the next gag, I glance up and freeze. The guy from before is here. You know, the guy. The one with the impossibly blue eyes. The one who wears flannel and jeans and is left-handed. Not that I was paying attention. He is looking out the window, so he doesn't see me gawking at him. Am I gawking? I don't think so. It was just a momentary look of surprise. Either way, the look has been tamped down to practiced indifference. He's three tables down from me, also along the window, so I consider trying the old angle of incidence, angle of reflection trick. You know, where it appears as though you're looking out the window, but are really looking at the other person's reflection. The light is coming through strongly, so it should pose a good reflection. But then it occurs to me, what if he's already trying the old angle of incidence, angle of reflection trick on me? If I try it when he's already doing it, then I'll be totally busted. I keep my eyes fixed on my magazine and feel for my cup, find it and take a sip as casually as can be. Nothing to see here, just enjoying a little quality me time, reading a kid's magazine and debating boy-girl nonsense that hasn't crossed my mind in forever. What are the rules these days? I haven't played the game in a long time. Do I look at him until he looks at me? Do I smile? Grin? How big? Teeth? No teeth? This is brutal. How did it become so warm in here? Who puts a stupid fireplace in a cafe? It occurs to me that I have been staring at the same page of Mad Magazine for an insanely long time and haven't read a single word. I decide to tear off the Band-Aid and try for the reflection bit. I look out the window at the necessary angle and shift my focus from the traffic passing to the reflection on the glass. My eyes adjust, and the guy's features defuzzify, only to find his reflection looking right back at me. Bastard. Before I can put physical motion to my momentary panic, he smiles. A simple grin, no teeth. Good grief, he has dimples. Are you kidding me? I look away, completely out of my depth, and try to formulate a plan. I come up with absolutely nothing, not a damn thing. So I do the next best thing. I grab my cup and take a swig of my chai. It tastes like ashes in my mouth. I involuntarily look back in his direction, not by way of reflection, but directly at him. He's looking right back at me with that idiotic grin on his face. My face feels hot enough to ignite a moist towelette. My stupid body has taken on a life of its own and has decided to do things of its own accord. Right now, it's decided to grin back and then chuckle. My body is a complete idiot. I turn my gaze back down to my magazine and die several hundred thousand deaths. Out of my peripheral vision, I see movement from his direction and lift my head to see him walking my way. He seems to be moving in slow motion. He's wearing a gray graphic t-shirt with two words in large block text, save Ferris. 
I did not just say that. There is no way this guy is wearing a t-shirt with a quote from one of my all-time favorite movies. No chance. He's still moving my way, still in slow motion. When he reaches my table, he stops and sets a magazine on it, right on top of the one I'm reading. I think you might like this one, he says. He pauses for the slightest of beats and then continues on his way, pushing open the door and walking out, exactly like last time. My brain screams at me to do something, but I freeze. It's like my body has gone into torpor, like a frog in a fridge. I look out the window at him as he jogs across the street. Before he leaves my field of vision, he glances back over his shoulder in my direction. He smiles. He glanced and he smiled. He did. I know he did. I saw it with my own eyes. Why do I feel like I just ran a marathon? My heart is zipping along at a decidedly unfranky pace. I slump back into my chair like a puppet whose strings have been cut. It's like suddenly my muscles all relaxed at the same precise moment. I didn't even realize I was wound so tightly. I take another hit of my chai. It's warm, smooth, and sweet. But then it hits me. He left. He didn't pull up a chair, didn't introduce himself, didn't do diddly jack squat. He was supposed to stop, say hi, ask me my name, sit down, provide a clever comment. I would laugh, the ice would be broken, and we would spend the next two hours making small talk, and it would feel like it had been two minutes. That's what was supposed to happen. That's how it plays out in the movies. But all he did was drop off a magazine. The magazine. I look down at what it is. It's a weathered old copy of, let's see, Rolling Stone another mag that's been purely digital for decades. The band on the cover, Vermicious Nids, were all the rage when my mom was in her prime. She played them for us when I was a kid. I wasn't even that big a fan of their music, but I liked that they named themselves after a reference from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And that's when I see it, written with surprising neatness next to the lead singer's head, a phone number printed in blue felt pen. I reach for my chai without looking and knock the contents all over the magazine. Now that's what I call a strong family bond. I couldn't imagine being in Frankie's position, feeling like the only way to save her brother is to sacrifice herself. And clearly the death of Frankie's mother still has an impact on her. Will Frankie's sense of duty to her family lead to her demise? Or could it be her salvation? Tune in again for more answers to be revealed. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to Death Warrant now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. You can find Brian Johnston on social media at Brian R. Johnston. And make sure you follow us at CamCat Books. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped, a serialized podcast. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat Books as podcasts. 
Also, check out our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books, including interviews with the authors, editors, and other industry professionals. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.